Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. If today's show appeared in some kind of book index, it would probably say McEnroe, comma, Colin, radio career, comma, twilight years of, pages 317 to 319. And that is the joy of an index. We, we enjoy, well, some of us enjoy a very well-done index, more than the frustratingly incomplete uh, index or no index at all, which is increasingly the case. And anytime something is in its twilight years, we get very interested in it. Today's show is entirely about indexes. We will talk to the person who wrote the proverbial book. We will talk to an indexer, the indexer of that proverbial book. We will also talk to an indexer of cookbooks, which is a slightly separate arc. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. That, of course, is My Back Pages by the Birds and Bob Dylan. And, of course, we're going to be talking today about back pages, the back pages of books, good books, good nonfiction books that have been responsibly indexed and sometimes artfully and creatively indexed, which is a rarer and rarer thing. And we are very happy to have a little later in the show, we will say you will meet a professional indexer. And then you will meet another professional indexer, the latter of whom specializes in cookbooks, which seems to be its own art or science or both. Uh, but right now, you're going to meet Dennis Duncan, the author of Index, A History of the – I should do it this way, Index, comma, A History of the uh, – A Bookish Adventure from Medieval Manuscripts to the Digital Age and a Lecturer in English at University College London. Welcome to our show. 
Thank you so much for having me. And also thank you for that that very sort of wry piece of, of music selection there, my back page. <laughs> yes. Well, Lily Tyson, with whom you have been dealing, is the person who, I don't even know how she figured that out. She's like, you know, 20 years old or something. Uh, but um, but it was, a, it was a good one. Uh, so... We should be, maybe begin by saying this this book arose, as I understand it, from what I would call in my world the Mark Kurlansky problem. And the Mark Kurlansky problem is this. Like two years from now, we might have, had we not known about your book, uh, decided we wanted to do a show about indexes just because we're the kind of show that would do an entire episode uh, about indexes. And then looked around and found, oh, well, this guy, Dennis Duncan, he wrote the perfect book. It's kind of playful and it's historical and it's cross-disciplinary and it weaves together culture and technology and is exactly the kind of book that we need. Mark Kurlansky famously writes these kinds of books here in America. It's why we could do an entire show about salt because Mark had written a book about salt that was sort of that kind of I've thing. Read, I've read one about cod as well. Yeah, and cod too. Yes, very good. So you needed that. You needed that kind of book. You wanted to write an article about a specific use of indexing. So you wanted that book. That you know that very kind of up to date, uh, playful, interesting cultural book about indexes, and it didn't exist. Yeah, well, that's right. I, I mean, thank you very much. I think it, it's a great honor for you to say it looks like a Mark Kalansky book. It definitely wasn't going to. So, so my background is I work on the history of the book. I spend my life when I'm not uh, in, in the teaching room in archives looking at medieval manuscripts, uh, 16th century books and stuff like that. And so my idea when I first said, oh, I'm going to write a history of the book index because people need this. When I thought about people need this, I thought <laughs> about three dozen people of my immediate sort of colleagues who work on the history of the book. And the whole thing was projected as, as being a very uh, uh, sort of dry bibliographic book with a very sort of small circulation. Who would honestly be interested in the history of the book index? Um, so the fact that it has turned out like this, the fact that I'm speaking to you across the Atlantic <laughs> about the history of the book index um, was certainly not how the, the project was initially envisaged by me. I thought this is going to be a very niche, <laughs> very bibliographic thing. Well, when, when I heard, read about your book, I said, to Lily Dyson, we have to do a show all about this. We'll probably be the only people who are really interested in it. And then I come to find out that you have the cover review uh, in the New York Times this past Sunday with a brilliant uh, uh, illustration and a terrific review by Mar yeah. Mar Marguerite Fox by herself at one point an indexer before she became other things as well. So, I mean, really, uh, the, the success uh, of this idea is no longer in question. So we need to talk a little bit about the history of the index, too, because it it really is pretty fascinating, and and maybe we could just um, dwell for a moment on on Mr. Grosstest, or should I say Bishop Grosstest, uh, if I'm saying his name right, even who seems to yeah. tower as one of the, the the people who suddenly decided. I mean, it's unclear whether he's inventing an index or a search engine, but he's inventing something uh, in the 13th century. Tell us more. Yeah, I like I like the idea of him towering now. So we don't know whether Grosstest is his real name or a nickname. Grosstest or Grosstest is the, the, the French. So we're talking about the 13th century here, where a lot of people in, in England, where I come from, are still speaking French. Um, Grosstest, uh, Big Head. He's uh, um, <laughs> Robert, Robert Big Head. And uh, maybe that is the family name, but maybe it's also just a name that sort of stuck to him because he's the person who knows everything. He has just the most capacious intellect. Even when he's a young man, he's being recommended to uh, um, 
to a bishop, you might like this young man, he could come in useful. He has read the, the, the sort of his reference letter, if you like, goes. He knows medicine, he knows law, he knows science, he knows history, he knows politics. Even at that age, the first thing we know about him, we don't know anything about his family, what year he was born, where he's from, apart from vague sort of hints. But the first time he enters the record, it's this letter of reference for a young man who's read everything, and he's called Big Head. Uh, Robert, <laughs> uh, Robert Big Head. And uh, then he sort of, uh, things kind of go dark a bit. We don't know much about his his life as an early adult until around about the age of 50, he turns up in Oxford. Probably he went to Paris, probably he did some teaching in Paris around about the year 1200. But certainly we know that by the, the late 1220s, he's in Oxford. He has a position, something like the vice chancellor of the university, um, probably when he's about 50 and he also has uh, acquired a lot of books and in these books he has a certain way of reading because he has such a capacious intellect by now he's read the bible he's read the uh, the early church fathers the script the scriptures he's read um uh, scientific writing he's read pagan writing he's translated some of aristotle from greek into uh, into latin so people can read it he's also familiar with the latest arabic philosophy so again i mean what i really want to get across is the encyclopedic nature of his reading when he has a book um there are certain topics that he's interested in quite a lot of them about 440 of them topics that when he comes across them in his reading he'll do it was a little scribble in the margin, a little sign. So when he comes across something which he thinks touches on the idea of imagination, he'll draw a little flower in the margin. That's the sign for imagination. Now, the text might not use the word imagination. Goodness knows he reads enough languages. So uh, um, he, he might come across the idea rather than a synonym, the concept of imagination. He'll do a little flower in the margin. And if you find some of his books, some of the manuscripts that he owned are still around in, in, in libraries in Oxford, and we can get them, we can run our finger down the margin. It's like a stream of emoticons. You're, you're, you're into your index finger down the margin. Run your index finger down down the margin, and it's <laughs> it's like one of my daughter's texts. It just it's a flower, and it's a table, and it's a star, and right. it's three dots. These are emojis. He's doing emojis. I, I want to tell you, by the way, that if you ever get tired of whatever gross test stuff you have uh, available to you where you live where I spend some of my time in New Haven, Connecticut at the Beinecke Library. I looked up today. We have, uh, at minimum, well, we have multiple gross test things. There's Dedecum Preceptus, uh, created by him, marginal notes in red ink with blue pen work. Uh, one historiated initial in full color depicting a horned Moses holding <laughs> the tablets of the law. So come, come to New Haven. We'll have lunch. We'll go look at the, the gross test stuff that they've got there. Uh, I genuinely I promise you I will one of these days. Um, but what he does then, having having marked up his books for all of the concepts that he finds there, he can then go back to them and just look for all of the all of the moments he's drawn a flower. And then he does an index. So he has a, another book. It survives in a single manuscript in, in Lyon in, in France, written about 1230, where for each of these concepts, he then writes out every moment that he's made that annotation. So maybe he'll say St. Augustine, City of God, Chapter 4, um, Imagination, also Imagination, blah, blah, blah. Um, so what he has there is a subject index. It's not a word index because these texts might use many different words for these things, but it's a subject index that goes across 
everything that he's read. And like I say, he's read everything. So this single manuscript uh, in, in France these days is, is on parchment. This is before paper had reached Europe. Um, and it's, I think I call it a kind of parchment Google because this is, <laughs> if you're in, in about 1230 and you want to know any the, the search engine, where can I find out people who've written about the concept that God exists, that manuscript will tell you. It'll say, okay, the first thing here is the, the mm -hmm. idea that God exists. And it's so, going to say, well, Genesis 1, because it says in the beginning God created it. Well, if he was there in the beginning, then he must exist. And then it will jump you into some early philosophers and so on and so on and so on. So right, this and, he's, is, and Dennis, he's, already, he's solving a problem. He's solving a problem that's already occurring, which is the other thing that's happening is another kind of indexing called a concordance. Concordance, uh, usually of the Bible. I used to use Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible, yeah. which I thought was a rather boastful name. But, um, <laughs> but, but so that'll tell you where lilies occur and where field occurs and where sow occurs and where reap yeah. occurs. Uh, it, but it's all keyed to word, words. As you point out, uh, if you, it'll tell you all the words that are in the story of the prodigal son, but it won't tell you a, it won't tell you anything about mercy or forgiveness, or for that matter, prodigal, because that's not in there either. So you you, you need something. Don't different. actually get used yeah. in that famous story about uh, mercy and forgiveness and prodigality. Yes, yeah, so it's not going to help. So that's the other thing that happens at exactly the same time. We're talking around about the year twelve thirty. So just as Gross Test is in Oxford doing his index to everything. In the Dominican friary, just on the left bank in Paris, on, on the city wall in Paris, a new uh, abbot has arrived. He's a man called Hugh, uh, Hugh of Saint-Cher, village in the, the south of France. And he gets all of the friars there working on a project to basically cut up the Bible, rearrange its words into alphabetical order, and then put a locator for every instance that word occurs. So some words only occur two or three times. Some words like sin or God occur hundreds of pages and pages of these locators going at Joshua 4, blah, blah, blah. Um, but this will this will allow you to, um, yeah, to find every instance of the word. So this is the concordance or the word index. It's different from Gross Test's subject index, even though we're talking about exactly the same point in history. And the concordance is like when you have a document and you do control F, jumping through a web page or a Word doc or, or a PDF with control F. As long as you know the word you're looking for, you can find all of the instances. You can jump, 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 jump through a document. That was invented by the Dominicans in 1230. All right. So um, we, we still can't have a proper index the way that you and I use indexes in books today because, because first of all, everything is being transcribed by hand. So my version of St. Augustine's Confessions could run 400 pages if my scribe mm. had fatter handwriting than your scribe or used a different side of, size of paper. Yeah. And what you need, you need Gutenberg. I mean, you need movable type. You need pagination. Uh, so there's actually page numbers. You need a lot of stuff like that. But once you get all those things in place, then the index really gets going. I'm going to skip ahead just in the interest of time and say, not all that long after there are indexes, people start getting naughty with their indexes and they they use them the way rappers use diss tracks these days. They use them to insult their rivals. Uh, and so this gets into sparring at the back of the book, one of the themes here. Um, maybe we could just give an example or two of this. Um, one of the feuds that you mention uh, is Charles Boyle versus Richard Bentley. I think we'll be here all day if we try to explain what the feud was about. But at a certain point, one of them decides to attack the other, not only in print, but in the index, uh, which is kind of hilarious. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So as you say, you, you certain things fall into place, alphabetical order, the invention of print. Suddenly, by the 16th, 17th century, everybody knows what an index is. All readers basically are familiar with it. And once the technology is familiar, then people can start to play off it. Then people can start to sort of ironize it. And what happens at the turn of the 18th century? We're talking about 1698 uh, and, and the first few years after that is that people start to do indexes to other people's books. But instead of being a generous index that tries to understand it, you do an index that undermines the text. So I'll give you an example. Um, we could talk about Boyle Bentley, but, but I'll tell you something else that happens a couple of years later. The year is 1705. And it's English politics. There's a man who's running to be Speaker of the House of Commons, so the kind of top job in English politics in 1705. He's called uh, Bromley. And the thing is about Bromley, about 12 years before, he was a young man and he's an aristocrat. And he did the thing that all young aristocrats did, which is a kind of aristocratic gap year in the in the 17th century. He went on the Grand Tour. We call it Grand Tour, capital G, capital T, where he went round. France and Italy on this sort of educational uh, trip, uh, educating himself about classical cultures and architecture and, and food and probably having a, a whale of a time. When he got back, he wrote a book called his, his Remarks on the Grand Tour. This is a rather pompous thing to do. Um, but the book didn't cause any ripples. The book sank without a trace. That was fine. Then he goes off and has this political career. The thing is, three days before the election, for Speaker of the House of Commons, suddenly a second edition of this book reappears. This book that he's, he's written and forgot about, suddenly 13 years later, there it is in the bookshops. And it's identical to the first edition, apart from the fact that it has an index. And the index is there to make fun of all of the moments that Bromley looks naive, stupid, like a, like a school child, maybe a little bit too uh, nice to Catholics because this wasn't uh, acceptable in 1705. All of the times when he uses sort of bad grammar or says things that, I mean, just stupid things. He's, he talks about he's setting out, leaving from England, going through the county of Kent. He talks about the town of Chatham. He says, Chatham, though commonly assumed to be on the other side of the river is actually on this side of the river now that's a stupid thing to say in a book and so they put uh bromley's opinions on chatham and its placement on this and so it's really uh, um a kind of send up of would you want this idiot in charge would you want this idiot in charge of the government um making fun of of the text this sort of start to craze so over the next decade or so we, we get a spate of these um indexes making fun of the book that aren't um aren't in earnest that aren't treating the book with the with the respect that an, an index is supposed to that are actually undermining it sending it up uh pulling the rug out from the author if you like so yes um and and the, the some of these things are very amusing too it's just kind of you know prose comma the dullness of or something uh and and but i, I we need to sort of speed yeah, ahead. Yeah. we need to speed ahead yet again cuz another thing oh, that happens <laughs> there's some really rude ones they yes. they have a language that that uh we think we invented in the 20th century like uh cows that shite fire page 64 and stuff all <laughs> making fun of these, <laughs> these scientific texts 
All right. So another anxiety crops up, uh, which persists to this day once indexes are firmly in place at the backs of books, and that is that people are going to read the indexes and not the books. And and no less an eminence than Jonathan Swift is very vexed mm. about this. All sorts of people mm. are worried that civilization will decay and crumble because people will cease to read books if the indexes are too helpful. Maybe you could say a little bit more about this, and then we're going to give a, a more modern example. Well, this is a really weird thing, but uh, as long as there have been indexes, there have been doomsayers who say that, uh, well, if you epitomize the book, if, if you condense the book into, uh, you know, a handy 20 pages, then people will stop reading books altogether. Now, it hasn't happened, um, but uh, we find this in, in the late 1400s. We find Erasmus, uh, the, the great European intellectual in 1533, writing a book in the form of an index, where he says, I had to write a book like this because these days it's the only part of a book that people read. And so this anxiety about, well, indexes are going to kill off our capacity for, for deep reading goes back half a millennium. And I think it's the same thing that we find. Nicholas Carr wrote, wrote a, an excellent book, uh, um, polemic, uh, um, the shallows. an article called, yeah, The Shallows, which grew out of an article that he wrote called, Is Google Making a Stupid? So there's this idea about proper reading. I don't agree with it, although I thought it was an excellent book. An idea about proper reading and indexes, whether that's Google or an index at the back of a book, um, uh, reducing our capacity to engage in proper reading. And I think my response to the shallows is to point out, look, people have been saying that for, for five or six hundred years and we still read books. So give ourselves a break, I think. Right. I mean, the abbot of Sponheim thought that a movable type was going to bring out about the end of civilization, wrote a treatise about it, and then used movable type to publish it. So uh, there are ironies within ironies about this. There's another thing that happens that's kind of in that category. Uh, and uh, around here, it's called the Washington Read. Uh, we're going to play a little clip from The West Wing, the series The West Wing. Uh, this is from 2004. Uh, what you need to know is that Vice President Hoynes has just published a tell-all book. And you're going to hear CJ, played by Allison Janney and Toby, played by Richard Schiff, looking through it as people do. What are you reading? Uh, Where'd you get that? Will had a copy. Will gave it to you? I borrowed it. I'm sure it's illuminating. Wonder how many times you mentioned? No. Wonder how many times I mentioned? Not really. Wonder how many times Josh has mentioned? Who is Josh? (laughs) Josh is. So this is something you're quite familiar with, Dennis Duncan. Explain uh, what's going on here. Well, the the name, the Washington Read, came about, I think, in the the 1970s. It's an idea that the the politicians in in D.C. would go into a bookshop and pull out the latest political memoir in the bookshop and just turn to the back to see if they were in it. And if they weren't, they put it back on the shelf and not buy it. Um, but there's a sort of narcissistic impulse, I suppose, to see if, if if this book has anything to say about me. The thing that I would say is it goes back further than the, the Washington Reed. Um, one of the nice times it crops up is in New York, actually, in, in 1966. So um, William F. Buckley has just run for mayor of New York failed to be elected and he's written a book about it. Buckley, you know, famous right-wing intellectual of the second half of the last century, he writes a book called The Unmaking of a Mayor and he writes to his friend or his, his frenemy, Norman Mailer, saying, can I quote you in this in this book? And Mailer says, no, you can't. Um, so when the book comes out, Buckley mentions 
that he's not been allowed to, to, to use uh, uh, Mailer in the book. Um, but he sends a copy of the book to Norman Mailer. And in the index at the back, under Mailer, Norman, page 321, whatever it is, Buckley has written with a red ballpoint pen, hi, exclamation mark. <laughs> and it's there in uh, an archive in, in Austin, Texas, where Norman Mailer's uh, uh, library has been stored. This joke, I've seen you, Norman, I've caught you, you narcissist, turning to the back rather than reading the whole book. I think this is one of the sort of earliest instances I can think of of the Washington Read. A really nice thing, though, is in order to use that, I put a picture of that book in my book, but in order to use that, I need to get permission from Buckley's estate because, because it has just one word of William F. Buckley's handwriting, it counts as a William F. Buckley manuscript, and I need to get permission from the Buckley estate to use it. So I wrote to Christopher Buckley, his son, who was very generous and said, sure, you can you can use my father's uh, one word manuscript. Um, but if you do, please, could you send me a copy of the book? So when the books came off the press last month, I had a brilliant idea. I thought I was so funny. I got, <laughs> I got my publisher to send him a copy, but before they did, I got them to, against Buckley, William F., at the index at the back in a red ballpoint pen just to go, hi. <laughs> well, it's worth it. Sorry, I'm laughing yeah. at my own joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, Chris and I were classmates. He would find that funny. Um, yeah. So um, I, it's worth noting, uh, and it'll segue us towards the next next segment, which we have to go to very soon, that in the also in the index to your book, your indexer, Paula Clark Bain, also known as mm. the, the notorious PCB, um, <laughs> repeats that joke. I mean, she basically does it herself. Uh, maybe we'll have her describe it when she's uh, there. But she mm. does a little hi to her friends in the uh, Index Society or whatever it's called, um, and not in ballpoint either. Um, but I do, the one thing that I wanted to say was narcissism, yes. But, I mean, the other impulse, and I think you hear it in, hear it in that West Wing clip, is self-protection. If the index says Trump, comma, Donald, Russian prostitutes urinating on, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's not that there's any book that says that, not that that ever happened, not in a million years. But um, if there, you, you want to know that, too. That's not a narcissistic impulse. It's how much trouble am I in for today? Well, I think that's right. I mean, again, I feel that um, we can be too hard on ourselves about checking things. Like that. The index is a wonderful time saver. We can't read every book from start to finish. And, and yet many, many books that we aren't going to read do contain moments that we would like to know. So, again, it's another of those things where I think yeah, we should give ourselves a break. If you use an index, pull out a bit of a book that you don't read from start to finish. What's the worst that can happen? It's good. We need to do it sometimes. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a break here. We'll have more of Dennis Duncan and the notorious PCB, uh, his personal indexer and indexer <laughs> of many great works. You know that things then weren't that easy. So many different tribes. So many different ways of writing. So who put the alphabet in alphabetical order? Oh, already we're behind schedule. Uh, but that's because the topic is so fascinating. We're talking about indexes today. Dennis Duncan, uh, the author of Index, comma, A History of the 
Colon, a bookish uh, adventure from medieval manuscripts to the digital age and a lecturer in English at University College London. And now you will meet a professional indexer, the notorious PCB, uh, a.k.a. Paula Clark Bain, the indexer of this book and many others. The two of them are here today to, together. Paula Clark Bain, welcome to our conversation. Hello, Colin. I, I'm quite fond of the notorious PCB. I'm liking that. Thank <laughs> yes, you. <laughs> feel free. Run with it. Run with it now. Um, so, uh, Paula, in, in Dennis's book, at one point, we come, we happen upon uh, Virginia Woolf. She's done an on all fours on the floor with uh, cut up pieces of paper all over the place. Uh, she's sort of a reluctant indexer, uh, something she's kind of fallen into. This isn't the index for one of her novels, which we can talk about later, but this is uh, somebody else's book that she's publishing. Is that how close to your life is that? I mean, was that a recognizable image when you read it? <laughs> Um, it's I, I can recognise it that that's how it used to be done. I, I can't say I'm surrounded by slips of paper anymore. It's all kind of words on a screen and a big mind map in my head. But I can certainly um, I can see the kind of <laughs> where that's come from. Certainly, right. You're not making glue out of flour or anything like that. Um, not not anymore. Not no. <laughs> anymore. Not necessary anymore. But maybe just talk a little bit. Well, one of the things that, that's at the back of the book here is kind of a, a John Henry thing uh, where uh, you have concocted this really kind of beautiful, funny and, and somewhat naughty uh, index, uh, whereas some computers also tried its hand, not that it has one, uh, at the same thing. Uh, maybe Dennis, you could begin by just sort of contrasting the two. You didn't really treat us to the entirety of what the computer uh, would have come up with, but, but talk a little bit about what you did do. Okay, well, I, first of all, I chose the, the first piece of indexing software I, I could find, and, and it was really funny, and I thought, this is great, because it's terrible. Because what, what I suppose I, I was biased, I wanted to show that the human would be better than the than computer, and the computer was so bad, and it pulled out um, words like all the times I use alas and stuff. But the, the really funny thing is I said that the concordance was invented in Paris in 1230 by Hugh of Saint-Cher, C-H-E-R, and the computer pulled out Cher, um, <laughs> as in Sonny and Cher. Yeah. And, and I was looking at this thing, this is crazy. Cher turns up in my book like 12 times. How did I not know this? And then it twigged, okay, <laughs> this, is the, this is the idiotic computer. And at, th at that point, I suppose I realized I'm gonna have to find out if this is really the best or if there's better software. And sure enough, I was able to find a computer that wouldn't, a, a piece of software that wouldn't be at least that stupid. And so the, the index at the back that's produced by computer is all right. It's quite interesting. Um, but some of the, all it, all it can do is pull out phrases, words or phrases. It can't pull out concepts. So if I've identified a concept without naming it, Paula can say, oh, here's the bit where he's talking about such and such. The computer just looks for, um, for words, um, some of which, uh, um, you know, grievances, comma, petty or uh, things like that are, are really just terms of phrase, uh, adventures, comma, you know, da, da, da. You know, nobody will, <laughs> I don't think, turn to the back to see where Dennis talks about adventures um, or alas or this type of thing. Whereas Paula's index does the job of trying to intuit, like any good index should, trying to intuit what are the things that people are going to return to this book for? What are the phrases that they will use? What are the pieces that people are going to want to look up? And how will they try to look those up? 
So, Paula, the, 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 the thing that I most want to ask you about, and I should wait, but I can't wait, uh, is I want to know about the Society of Index, Indexers. I want to know what their conferences are like, what kinds of people turn up, uh, who, who, what kind of people choose these this profession, and whether the conferences include moments of gutter, comma, vomiting in after wild parties. Uh, I mean, what goes on there? Well, there's there's a certainly a professional side and um, learning and workshops and seminars and special speakers. And Dennis has been one of those speakers a few times. That's how we met in the first place. Um, but then, you know, there's some downtime as well. And, and there's a few who like to go to the bar and have a good chat about other things after sort of. I mean, it, I, I should jump in done. at this point, sorry, and just say that, that I, I got Paula to index my book because I'd been to one of the conferences and we'd got talking in the pub afterwards. Paula was one of the yeah. people who did hang around afterwards and go to the bar. And I thought, oh, that's what I want. I want somebody who A, knows the subject, but B, has that kind of barroom mentality. <laughs> well, at their first international conference, the Society of Indexers, um, the art historian William Hexler delivered an address in praise of a certain kind of index that, quote, might pride mm. itself on being the child of imagination. Such a work he went on should enable us to spend a peaceful evening in bed reading it uh, as if we were reading a good novel. Uh, Paula, that seems to have been very much your approach with this index. I haven't gotten the Jack the Ripper index out yet to see what you did with that one. But, um, but maybe you could say a little bit about just you know what an in- index can be if you turn loose your imagination yeah i'm i'm aware of that um actually quote and that that was very much in my mind as well because it's it's a part of the text it's another part of the text and then it, it lends itself to you can do more interesting things with it um and make it something that's just readable in itself w- w- without using it to look things up which it's supposed to be there for um so there's there is a hopefully a good scholarly base index there which you can use which will help you find what you need in the book um but dennis also definitely wanted um, a lot of humor in it and he wanted personality in it and he wanted to illustrate all sorts of points that he talks about in the book because it's a, it's a very lively book and there's lots of there's lots of uh indexes up to a lot of mischief in the book that he talks about and so we kind of wanted to reflect that in my index as well so i'm kind of i was given license to play um <laughs> <laughs> which was amazing. <laughs> he kind of yeah gave me free reign to just go and put lots of things in and try things out and um and I put a lot of things in because I thought well I wasn't sure Dennis was going to say yes to them all and we weren't sure our publisher was going to say yes to them all and I think they all stayed in actually so there's there's a lot of um, playful stuff in there and some of the types uh, of things that you're talking about Paula just so people can understand are are things like anagrams, things like acrostics. There's a few little kind of word games like word golf that you've included some, uh, as well as some more explicit kind of humor, but, but it really has, it, it, it runs, runs the gamut of, uh, of kind of wordplay, I think. Right. Uh, yeah. We've also got um, sort of playing with the, playing with the reader as well. Cause obviously an index usually has cross references in it. C cross references and C also cross references. So the ones, there's some that work perfectly well, but there are some, that do what what you should not do when you're trying to be an indexer, which is send people all around the houses and send them in circles. And mm. um, right. it's just and the, kind of toying and, with the reader. And I love the way that you make that joke. The way that you make that joke is, for example, there'll be a, an index item, item that says quest, comma, hopeless, see bootless errand and the whole idea is that, yes, we can run around in circles. I mean, I, and those of us who use indexes 
hate the hate. We often hate the word see. It's like, oh no, just tell me, <laughs> tell me what page <laughs> share is on. Don't send me to sequins so I can look up share. You know, uh, but but I mean, it's it is sort of necessary at times. And and Dennis, I think she did. You know, she might have slipped one under the radar here because she really does do a William F. Buckley with the Society of Indexers. Uh, it says it says hi colleagues. Or something like that in brackets, right? Right b- before there are any entries for the Society of Indexers, uh, this is high colleagues PCB. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, uh, you, you got us that way too. Hey, I want to just talk a little bit about the status of indexes. First of all, let's acknowledge that. For pretty obvious reasons, Paula, they are the last things added to most books. Those of us, those of us who get a lot of advanced copies for books that we're going to talk about on the radio or do something else with, often get them with no indexes because they're they're not done yet, right? It's it, it kind of is the last thing to get done. Yeah, traditionally, it would you have to you're having to wait for it to be typeset um, and wait for the correct page numbers. So it has to be the last thing that's done because it has to be after. The copy editing after the proofreading, everything is fixed in the text, and then you can say where things are. Although now there's embedded indexing, which can be done at an earlier stage, unlike the Word manuscript. So it's not necessarily the last thing that's done anymore, but for the most part, it still is. Um, so it's always tight deadlines, and uh, yeah, the last thing to go in. And and I mean, I want you both to talk about this, but Paula, maybe you can get us started. I mean, there seems there seem to be. Heuristically, there seem to be more books coming out that should have indexes, that really need indexes, that don't have indexes. I assume this is because mm-hmm. uh, that you charge $800,000 for every index you do, <laughs> and, and no one is willing to pay that amount of money. It, well, <laughs> that's not quite that much, but it, it is down to costs. Yeah, <laughs> it is all down to costs. It's um, cutting corners and cutting costs, and sometimes publishers don't feel that that's a price worth paying but then it's it's made the book less useful if you're using trying to use a biography or something a very long biography how are you supposed to use that and look things up and find what you need or researchers or students looking for things um it's it's useless if you can't find things really. mm. Yeah, and and one more thing, and then I want to cut back to Dennis on it. But to me, the, I think the only thing for us, only thing potentially more frustrating than no index when I feel like I need an index is that sort of proper name index, where all it just says is you know Duncan comma Dennis page one seventy seven uh, and page two eighty eight, and I, I like. Yeah, well, what about him? <laughs> and to me, to me, it's that middle ground that's, I mean, just don't even bother giving me an index then because this is so unhelpful. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that. Um, sometimes that's done to save space because sometimes we're told you've got eight pages with this index or 800 lines and it's not enough. And so you're trying to you're trying to save as many lines as you can. So just putting Duncan, Dennis in the page number, you're only using one line. If you expand that and to say what exactly you're saying about Dennis on that page, you might be using two or three lines. And right. you don't, if you haven't got much space to play with, you don't want that. So, but, but it does make for a, a boring index. I right. Think. I want, I, I want, yeah, I want Duncan comma Dennis scandal involving otters. You know, I, like, exactly. I want to know like, what, what is on that page? What, is, what are they you saying about that? that. <laughs> you have to just look it up <laughs> to right. find out. Right. I think I violated our agreement. Well, I mean, Dennis <laughs> Duncan, now is, the, now is the time to just say, I mean, wh- what is... What is the world going to look like with, uh, I mean, how, how big a loss is it if books just kind of stop having indexes or imagine that everything can be basically scanned into computers and then search control F or, or whatever? I mean, what's getting lost in all that? 
what's getting lost is the personality. So, so um, jumping through a document with with a word search, with with concordance search, um, is really useful. I use it all the time. We all use Control F. Um, but when you were describing the index that just says Duncan, comma Dennis, blah blah blah, what we lose here is the personality. What what Paula does, what an indexer does, is have to make an interpretation, have to make a judgment. How shall I describe? what Dennis did with the otter on page 45. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? So the index is is uh, um, essentially subjective. Well, as soon as you go beyond just that kind of uh, index of proper names or something, the index becomes an act of t- interpretation. And that's lovely. And you mentioned that quote earlier about reading a good index is, is like reading a good novel. Uh, um, that subjectivity, that act of this is um, this is how the indexer uh, thought that people should interpret this scene or this moment. These are the scenes that somebody thought was important. So uh, that subjectivity, A, is very useful, as you say. I mean, the, the proper name index is, is fine, um, but it requires extra work then. It requires you to, to, to flick through all of the moments to, to find the, the otter incident. And uh, um, but it also loses the stamp of, of of the human, which I think is which I think is nice. I mean, I keep talking these sort of silly analogies about in fifty years' time that the the sort of human produced index will be like the way that we drink craft beer now. Sure, most people you can go out and you get your Budweiser or something, but there will be a call for at certain moments we prefer to have your hipster uh, um, niche craft index. Uh, I, think, I think that's the way that's the way things are going. <laughs> right. And and I won't spoil it for the reader, but I mean, the example given of, I think, uh, an excerpt, an index to one of uh, Samuel Pepys's diaries about a certain woman. It, it's a great example very, of what can be done with an index or what could ah. be done with an index back then. But uh, just with a little bit of time that we have left here, because we have to segue over to cookbooks in just a second, we should talk about the because what got you started all, on all this, Dennis, to a certain degree, is the idea of writers of fiction, specifically a certain group of French writers of fiction, uh, suddenly, or, and Calvino, and uh, suddenly there are some indexes fancifully uh, at the backs of books. We should say that this goes back further. I mean, Samuel Richardson, who writes novels when nobody even knows what a novel is, uh, gets talked into putting an index at the back of the novel by Dr. Johnson or something. But, but say a little bit more about that idea of indexes in fiction. Well, when you were talking to Paula about how big an index should be or, or, or things like that, what strikes me is the idea of well, which books should have them. And people sometimes said to me, why don't novels have indexes? I think for the most part, novels don't need indexes, but that's to do with the way that we use them. Indexes are about the way that we use books, mostly with novels. I certainly read them from start to finish once. Start on page one, read through to the end, take it to the charity shop. I don't need an index for that. It's like if you have a very long, straight road with no exits with no tur- you know, turnings, um, you don't need any road signs. An index is a navigation tool, it's a road sign. But as soon as you start to say, after I've traveled that road, I might want to go back to that bit or turn off there or blah, blah, blah. That's when you start to need a map. So um, certain types of novel do have indexes. People have written indexes for all of the novels of Jane Austen, for uh, Proust in French. There's an index to 
uh, Lord of the Rings. What these all have in common is that they're novels that that people stick with for life. They're uber classics, if you like. They're 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 novels, but they're novels that you don't just read once. They're novels where you think, I've I loved that. Now, where was the bit? I was going to tell that person about when Emma goes to Box Hill and she falls out with Mr. Knightley. Where's that bit? You see what I mean? Certain types of novels aren't just linear reads. Certain types of novels are things that we come back to. And as soon as you do that, then it makes sense to have an index. Well, you know, I just, while you were talking, was searching and I'm just confirming that Lord of the Rings is fiction. I That had escaped my notice. I did not realize that. Uh, it, it casts everything in a very different light. All right. We have to move on to cookbooks. You know, it's been so great to talk to the notorious PCB. Paula Clark Bain is an indexer. Dennis Duncan is the author of Index, a history of the uh, a bookish adventure from medieval manuscripts to the digital age. Uh, thanks to you. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the specific problems and occasionally vexations of the cookbook index. And we're back. A special thanks today, uh, sort of subbing in the role of technical producer is Amatruda, comma, Eugene, comma, radio station would fall into the Connecticut River without, page 181. Uh, also, uh, Tyson, comma, Lily, senior producer extraordinaire, pages uh, 88 to 151. Uh, they have helped out, uh, obviously, tremendously with this. Uh, and yes, uh, if you own lots of cookbooks, which I do, uh, you are familiar with the experience of looking in the index for something. Uh, and that index might have been created by Elizabeth Parson, our next guest, a professional indexer who does work on cookbooks, including an especially massive and important one fairly recently. Uh, that would be the Amanda Hesser Essential New York Times cookbook, The Recipes of Record. So welcome to our show, and uh, and, and thank you for your service as an indexer. Well, thank you for having me. So one of the things that can be frustrating to the reader, uh, imagine that you are Lily Tyson, senior producer, uh, and you want to make your favorite um, Brussels sprouts and mushroom uh, casserole, and you look up mushrooms and it's not there because it's only under Brussels sprouts. Um, so talk a little bit. I mean, that's one of, one of your many challenges, right, is to figure out what the looker-upper uh, is going to want and whether it's possible to give them everything that they might want. That's exactly right. What you're trying to do is when you index a cookbook and you're indexing the recipes, you want to pick out the primary ingredients in that recipe and you want to make sure that those are in the index. So Lily would find her recipe under Brussels sprouts and mushrooms. Um, I will say that um, with publishing these days, they can sometimes try to save money or um, not have enough room for the index. So there aren't enough pages for the index and it creates quite a problem for the indexer because you know you need to make a more thorough index. It should really be eight pages, but it ends up being cut at five pages and Lily isn't gonna find um, as easy a way to find her recipes. Um, so I think I don't like to um, rag on indexers because I think often the problem with uh, not very good indexers is uh, indexes is a simple lack of space in the back of the book for the index. Yeah, so that said, with with the Essential New York Times cookbook, they were wonderful and generous and gave me tons of room for that index. So 
I think that's a pretty thorough index. Um, so they're often the very thorough indexes are great because they're thorough and it, it's great that the publisher recognized that they um, should pay for a lot of pages for the index. Right. And I think the other argument for having really, really thorough indexes in cookbooks now, as opposed to in the past, is that the alternative is that somebody, somebody like me maybe, has some boneless chicken thighs and, uh, I don't know, a little thing of cranberries and some bacon and, and some broccoli. And I just type all of those things into Google and see what comes back from less reputable sources than Amanda Hesser, right? Ultimately, you want me to go to Amanda Hesser as a, and look up ingredients and find things to make with them. And that mean, yeah. that requires a good index, right? Right. It does. Um, it does. I, I think a lot of people say, why do you even need cookbooks these days? Because you have these wonderful sites like the New York Times cooking website and all sorts of food sites. And um, it is very easy to look up recipes on those websites. You, you punch in chicken thighs and cranberry sauce, and you'll find the recipes that come up that will use those ingredients you have in your kitchen. However, a lot of those recipes, as you say, are not vetted and cookbooks still offer so much. They offer tested recipes. They offer the, the wonderful voice of the author. They offer a lot of history. They're often just a cultural dive into history and ethnicities and they can be travel logs. I mean, they are they are books that you want to pick up and look at a lot. Right. And that's where cookbooks, I really think, shine. And I think there's just been such an explosion in cooking in the past 25 years that I think more and more people are interested in cooking. And there's a lot more cookbooks out there that than ever used to be. And I think this says that cookbooks do have legs. I mean, I think they're around for a long time and they add a lot of value. Right. Not not literally legs. That would be disturbing. But um, so um, another thing, we're almost out of time here, but another thing that a publisher or a cookbook author may want from you is um, to get everything that could possibly be brunch under brunch and then with subheadings for all the things. But that requires you to make or somebody to make judgment calls, right? I mean, yes. is, is everything brunch? What What's brunch and what isn't? That's really tough. Um, one person's brunch is another person's lunch or supper. Um, that's, that's really arbitrary. And when I'm asked to do that, I kind of push back and say, um, I, you know, either trust my judgment on this or give me some guidance. There, there was a time 10 years ago when a lot of recipes would, um, a lot of cookbooks would have main index entries for main dishes mm -hmm. and side dishes. That's a tough one. What is a main dish these days? Everything gets so fluid. Right. We're all grazing. Um, We're so, all grazing. Yeah. Everything so, is an appetizer. Right. Well, we have to end here, Elizabeth Parson, but I do want to say just in praise of your profession that, as I said in a previous segment, you know, those of us in the press who often get books in advance uh, will get books with no indexes. And I, I re 
I've gotten cookbooks, you know, in advance that don't have an index yet. I've got a really great Dory Greenspan cookbook, but and I think it's oh, which one? I, I can't remember what it's called, but I mean, they're all great. She lives around here; she's terrific. They but, are um, wonderful. Yeah, but it's just, it's a zero 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 on the index pages. They just hadn't done it yet, so it's maddening. Oh. I've got to actually go through and look at everything. So, what you do is incredibly valuable, Elizabeth Parson, professional indexer who works on cookbook. We have to say goodbye. Thanks to Emma Truna, comma Jean uh, and Tyson, comma. Lily and to all of our guests and thanks to you for listening to a show about something as insane as indexes. With tools that blend